Hey Irish fans, Alex Painter here to remind you that if you or your company has screen printing or embroidery needs, look no further than our pals at WCScreens.com. Nationwide shipping? Check. Wholesale pricing? Check. They are indeed the gold standard of the industry. Give them a holler at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Today on Onward to Victory, we are not only talking about the least recognizable, but also the most improbable of Notre Dame's seven Heisman Trophy winners. Who do you think it is? Yep, that would be quarterback John Hewitt. After offering a brief recap of what the show did in 2022, I'll tell the tale of Hewitt, who seemingly came out of nowhere to capture college football's most prestigious honor in 1964. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and this is episode 73 of your favorite Fighting Irish pod. I have a nice story for you all as we prepare to vault into 2022's holiday season. And as a quick note, this particular holiday season will include your Irish taking a trip to the Gator Bowl to square off against the South Carolina Gamecocks. I will be doing a postseason wrap-up episode sometime in early 2023 where we can digress what was, of course, not only a very interesting season, but at some points, really fun season, and at other points, absolutely maddening season. But I have quite a few episodes planned for early 2023, so always stay tuned. And briefly looking backward, please give the show's previous episode a listen. It was to commemorate Native American Heritage Month, so we covered a couple former athletes at Notre Dame, one football, one baseball, and a future student-athlete, Winter Jock, who will be suiting up for the women's lacrosse team next year. Give it a listen. Though I'm a bit partial, as usual, I do think it came together very nicely. Now, before we jump into the meat of the episode, I did want to share a quick email here. Uh, from a listener named Chris Kozicki, and I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, but he is a season ticket holder. His father-in-law is Notre Dame class of 61, and his daughter is actually currently a nursing student at St. Mary's College. Uh, But he writes the following, Hi Alex, I've been meaning to send you a note for a while. I stumbled upon your podcast at the end of the summer. What a great find. I love Notre Dame football and history. Most podcasts only discuss the current team. I power listen to all your historical podcasts, and they are great. As a child, our vacations consisted of visiting Civil War battlefields. Learning about Notre Dame's connection with the Civil War is very fascinating and explains why God, country, and Notre Dame is so important to the school. So Chris, I not only thank you for the very nice note, but also an episode idea. He suggested 
uh, very astutely because, you know, his daughter is a nursing student at St. Mary's, but he suggested a, another episode in the Civil War series, the Notre Dame in the Civil War series, that is, about the significance and the importance of the St. Mary's nurses in the war effort. And I could not agree any more. In fact, I would say that that is a glaring omission in the Notre Dame in the Civil War series to this point. So that'll be something that is covered this offseason. Chris, I will give you the assist now, and I will give you the assist when it comes out as well. So thank you again. And I'd also like to thank the Consensus All-Americans. Again, those special folks who donate to the show monetarily. Yes, they are the Consensus All-Americans, and they include Michael Fyan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. Eternally grateful for every last one of you. That is why I call you out every single episode, because you all do help keep the Subway alumni train on the tracks. And of course, thank you to WCScreens.com, our banner sponsor. And if you're sitting there saying, say, I'd like to get my name called out as well, make sure you go visit the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. Everything is so greatly appreciated. All right, so let's move into our 2022 recap. As I'm sitting here finishing this episode, it is likely the last one of the year. Now, of course, that could possibly change, but... Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But something I had kind of forgotten this year, 2022, that is, is that the first episode of the year was released on January 3rd. Boy, it started early. It was episode number 56, which was dedicated to the history and legacy of Cartier Field, the first true stadium of the Fighting Irish. The episode that you're listening to right now is actually the 18th episode of the year. So what else did we talk about? Well, let's take a brisk jog down memory lane. Episode 57, we covered the tenure of Coach Terry Brennan, particularly his team's monumental upset of Oklahoma in 1957. It also meant a ton to me that show listener and supporter Andy Nickel, aforementioned Andy Nickel, showed the episode to Jack Landry, who was one of the last remaining Leahy lads still living. And not only that, but he was also a friend of Terry Brennan's while the coach was still living. Andy even sent me the voicemail that was left on his machine from Jack's wife, Jan. So thank you again, Andy. Episode 58, I was joined by sometimes co-host Matt Gehring for a State of the Program address, where we discussed the Irish ahead of the 2022 spring game and kind of a post-coaching staff shakeup. Episode 59 was dedicated to the often-forgotten program luminary, Chet Grant, perhaps the smallest man ever to suit up for Notre Dame. Chet played for the Irish, coached the Irish, covered the Irish for the local paper as a high schooler, and he was well-suited then to become the program's first historian. Episode number 60 was about the interesting fundraising games the Irish participated in after the 1930 football season. Believe it or not, these games would be the very last ones Coach Rockney would organize or coach before his 1931 untimely death. 61 was released on Mother's Day, appropriately because the legacy of 19th century Irish head coach Frankie Herring was discussed. The day was appropriate, of course, because he was an early and vocal proponent of, you guessed it, the Mother's Day holiday. Episode 62 was the most popular of the entire year. Joined once again by Matt Gehring, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of the 2012 team 
and discussed the Manti Teo girlfriend hoax at length. This was in May, I'd like to note. The Netflix documentary was announced, I believe, the next month, so talk about getting to the scoop first. (laughs) Episode 63, the third anniversary special, was all about Father Edward Sorn and how he, as an aging man, helped the campus rebound after a devastating 1879 fire that truly could have spelled the end of the university. Episodes 64 and 65 were a duo that I called Alex's Irish Anecdotes. Each episode contained several mini-stories of interest, and generally not things discussed across Notre Dame history and lore. Very cool stuff. But shortly after the 1966 Captain College Football Hall of Famer and one of my extended family members, Jim Lynch, passed away, we appropriately commemorated episode 66 to his legacy and memory. It was called, I Carried My Weight. I heard from one of his daughters actually after the episode about how much they appreciated it. 67 marked the fourth annual season preview, so Matt Gehring and I broke down the games, position groups, and all the other merriment you talk about ahead of the season. I'd like to say that I predicted the Irish would go 10-3, and three, so at this point I'm really hoping for 9-4. and four. <laughs> I think we're all hoping for 9-4. and four. But uh, So episodes 68 through 72 were what I think of as in-season episodes. Right, very clever. I know, because they're aired in season. But 68 was dedicated to the friendship, playing career, and legacies of two members of the legendary 1909 Notre Dame team in Ralph Dimmick and George Philbrook. One tragically died as the result of a football injury, and the other became a world-class decathlete going toe-to-toe with Jim Thorpe in the Olympics. Episode 69 was a conversation I was able to have with renowned Notre Dame artist Kathleen Kiefer, which was a ton of fun. We made a lot of interesting connections and talked about George Gipp and talked about art, and she was just, uh, she was an absolute treat. Episode 70 was a Halloween special where I discussed the history of the two cemeteries on campus. Again, clever, I know. And episode 71 was a detailed look at George Gipp's greatest game as a member of the Fighting Irish. That would, of course, be the 1920 game against Army. That game was absolutely bonkers, by the way. Uh, (laughs) So episode 72 was the Native American Heritage Month commemoration, and now here we are today at episode number 73. So where did the listeners in 2022 come from? A great question. I'm happy to share that 47 different states and nearly two dozen countries. So we didn't get anyone from Montana, Alaska, or Wyoming this year, though we have in the past. But if you know anyone from those three states, eh, give them a jingle, share the show with them. But Illinois, Indiana, California, New York, and Ohio were the states that tuned in the most. I mentioned Manti Madness was the most popular episode of the year. This is true. The next four most popular episodes were, in order, episode 67 of the 2022 season preview, episode 58, the state of the program address, episode 56 about the origin of Cartier Field, and episode 57 about Terry Brennan round out the top five. Unpacking that just a little bit, it's not uncommon from other years. I think a lot of people really, really like the historical deep dives, which comprise most of the show's work, but... 
It's always the season preview episode or any other episodes more about the current Fighting Irish that tend to skew the most popular, and that's okay. I understand. I know there's a lot of people who do enjoy the historical podcasts, and that's kind of where we're going to stick. So there you have it. Either way, I'm appreciative of everyone sticking around these parts for yet another wildly entertaining and productive year. So thank you. A lot of things were covered this year that really hadn't been, or at least not widely discussed, but I think this is the most exhaustive oral history of the school and football program. But it always takes folks tuning in, supporting, and listening. So thank you again. John Hewitt, the improbable Heisman, right after this. All right, think for a moment here, Heisman Trophy winners. Yes, there have been some that came seemingly out of nowhere. Barry Sanders, for one. Yeah, I know, arguably the best running back of all time, but in 1987, he was Thurman Thomas's backup at Oklahoma State. In 1988, all he did was rush for over 2,600 yards and score 37 touchdowns. 37! He won a Heisman. But think about Cam Newton at Auburn. He'd only thrown 12 collegiate passes before winning the Heisman Trophy in 2010. These are just two examples. There are many, many more. But I will tell you that all of them take a page out of the John Hewitt playbook. John Hewitt was one of the very first Heisman winners to seemingly come out of nowhere. Total obscurity and rise to the nation's best football collegian. But let's start at the beginning. Hewitt was born on April 6, 1944 in the Los Angeles area. Needless to say, I learned a lot about John Hewitt during this episode and researching it. So for one, I found out that his father, Joe, was a minor league baseball player. He was an infielder and he played a decade in the minor leagues. And he worked his way all the way up to Class A ball. Now, at the time, this was actually kind of recognized as just being one step away from the major leagues. So kind of like we look at AAA today. Joe even said he played a couple games against Yankee legends Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. So another thing I learned is that John Hewitt is actually Hispanic. I had no idea. But in an interview he gave with Unanimo Deportes, yeah, my Spanish is terrible, but he, in an interview he gave in September of 2022, he said, quote, the Hewitts migrated from Spain to Mexico, then to South America, and later in 1890, my grandfather Martin went to live in Ventura, north of Los Angeles, California, as a missionary. There he met Pilar Aristegui, my grandmother. Again, I hope I got that correct, but they were both Spanish Basque. They both spoke Spanish and Basque. They later married and had three girls and four boys, one of which would have been Joe, John's father. But my grandfather died very young due to stomach cancer, and my grandmother had to raise the children alone here in the Los Angeles area, end quote. Of course, being a minor league baseball player didn't guarantee Joe a life of riches, actually far from it. But he clearly instilled two things in his kids, including his son, John. One was obviously some natural athletic talent, but the other was a drive and work ethic that simply wouldn't quit. 
As a youngster, John worked on his family's citrus and avocado orchard. He later said that during their long days working, some days sun up to sundown, his dad would put on Notre Dame games on the radio as they worked. And that was John Hewitt's introduction to the Irish, listening to them on the radio as a boy while working in the orchards. Again, according to the Unanimo Deportes article, quote, Hewitt never thought of playing football. Despite being a good athlete, most thought that he didn't have the necessary physique to stand out on the gridiron, end quote. Perhaps he was just being humble, I don't know, but I do know it always helps to go to powerhouse high school football programs, though. John Hewitt attended Modern Day High School in Santa Monica, California. It was a powerhouse then, and it's a powerhouse today. But Hewitt, who wore number 11 in high school, he would eventually wear number 7 for Notre Dame, led Modern Day to a Class 2A state championship as a senior in 1960. During the state championship victory against Santa Ana Valley, John completed 11 of 13 passes for 164 yards and four touchdowns. That's just some serious efficiency. Again as a senior in 1960, he was named to the first team All-Orange County. The Los Angeles Times shared that, quote, Hewitt does everything well. Runs, passes, punts, kicks extra points, field goals, and kickoffs, and plays a mean game at linebacker. A good student and considered a good college prospect, end quote. Not a great college prospect, but a good one, I guess. <laughs> but on the statistical side, he completed 87 of 130 passes on his senior season, and that's good for a 67% completion rate. Now listen, this mark is good now, but it was utterly fantastic in 1960. He was even called Modern Day's, quote, passing wizard. He had 16 touchdowns his senior year versus just five interceptions. And he also gained 375 rushing yards at seven yards per carry and averaged 41 yards per punt. Modern Day was also coached by a man named Dick Corey, who graduated from Notre Dame in 1951. Now, in looking through the archives, it doesn't appear as though Corey played varsity football during his time at Notre Dame, but he did suit up in those spirited inner hall leagues. On December 15, 1960, the paper reported that the, quote, 185-pound senior has not decided which college he'll attend, but Notre Dame hopes to have him, end quote. About three months later, March 24, 1961, or their whereabouts, Hewitt made his decision. He was heading to South Bend, to Notre Dame, to play for the Irish. Yet more things I learned, John Hewitt was actually a Notre Dame legacy. I actually didn't see this written anywhere, except for in a throwaway article in a 1961 paper. But his older brother David had actually graduated the year before from Notre Dame. David didn't appear to play sports at the university, but was elected as a class officer. So there is that, and I thought that was quite a piece of interest. So the, quote, good college prospect, John Hewitt, headed to South Bend to play football for Irish head coach Joe Kuharch. I would be remiss not to mention kind of the state of affairs of Notre Dame football at this time. There's really no way to paint it any differently. John's first three years on campus, 1961, 1962, and 1963, were among the least successful stretches in the football program's history. 
During those three years, so his freshman, sophomore, and junior years, the team went 12-17. and 17. So if you pair those three seasons with the season before Hewitt got there, 1960, your Irish sported a 14-25 and 25 record during that four-year stretch. Pretty unbelievable, right? And it wasn't really like John could do much to help the situation on the field. I mean, as a sophomore, he was the fourth-string quarterback. And as a junior, he got some snaps, as we'll talk about, but not enough to make an impact. But that's because the quarterback, during most of Hewitt's tenure, which, of course, he couldn't play varsity as a freshman, was the late Daryl LaMonica, who actually just passed away in April of 2022. So though the Irish weren't successful as a team per se, LaMonica was a pretty effective quarterback, all things considered, and of course famously enjoyed a productive professional career mostly spent with the Raiders. So really, Hewitt wasn't dislodging LaMonica from that spot. So for his sophomore and junior seasons, he threw 50 passes. Just 50. I'll put it this way, and maybe this will really drive the point home. After his junior season, John Hewitt had not played enough football at Notre Dame to earn his monogram yet. So yes, spoiler alert, he'd win the Heisman Trophy before receiving a varsity letter. I'm seriously asking you right now, can you believe that? I had the hardest time wrapping my head around that. But the football review issue later wrote that, quote, in September, it was thought that Hewitt would be lucky if he received a monogram this year. As it turned out, he got the Heisman Trophy. Spoiler, sorry. Parsegian instilled confidence and desire into his non-letterman passer, and Hewitt responded superbly. End quote. So again, a couple spoilers there, but needless to say, after the disastrous 2-7 campaign in 1963, this was Hewitt's junior season, Irish head coach Hugh DeVore was fired. Notre Dame was honestly becoming dangerously close to becoming an afterthought in the national college football landscape. I mean, their record just stunk so bad. And even before those four aforementioned terrible years that we just discussed, it wasn't like they were setting the world on fire during the second half of the 1950s either. They just really hadn't been the same since Frank Leahy left in the mid-50s. But... I guess that set the stage for one heck of a comeback. So let's set it then. An almost completely nondescript quarterback for a former blue-blooded program which was clinging to national relevancy. So what happened? In 1964, the first-year head coach for the Irish saw some serious potential in a senior quarterback that had otherwise been buried or at least obscured on the depth chart. The quarterback was John Hewitt. The first-year head coach, Era Parsegian. Era was going to ride his first year with John at quarterback. That he decided early on. Hewitt actually told a story much later that Era had actually put him in at linebacker during practice because he just kind of wanted to test his toughness and his nose for the football. And then later, Era said, John, you're my quarterback. And that confidence of the new coach really juiced up Hewitt and uh, <laughs> juiced him up in a hurry during the season's first game in Madison at Camp Randall against Wisconsin. The unranked Irish absolutely thumped the Badgers, 31-7. And Hewitt was phenomenal. 
he completed 15 of 24 passes for 270 yards. These are eye-popping numbers at this time. And 217 of those 270 yards went to Irish wide receiver Jack Snow. The 217 yards pretty much obliterated the record, the school record, I should say, in yards receiving for a single game. But the Hewitt to Snow combo proved to be the most lethal in the entire nation that season. So the next week, the Irish thumped Bob Greasy and the Purdue Boilermakers 34-15 at home. And after whacking Roger Staubach and the Navy team 40-0 on Halloween, the Irish moved into the number one spot in the nation. I'm bringing these quarterback names up completely intentionally. These were established quarterbacks. And Hewart, again, the unknown, the new guy on the block, is leading his team and just steamrolling him. This turnaround was insane. And again, completely buoyed by the new coach and the upstart quarterback. And I mean this. They whomped everyone. Through nine games, they ran their record to 9-0 and zero and were never really challenged. And they held that number one ranking for the last four weeks of the season after being virtually irrelevant for nearly a decade. But unfortunately, they did fall to a three-loss USC team the very last game of the season, 20-17. to 17. So subsequently, Arkansas was called the national champion that season, and your Irish fell to number three. But, and I can say this because it is unquestionably the truth, and with, well, history backing it, <laughs> uh, Notre Dame was back, and frankly, they would stay back for the next 20 years before a brief lull in the 1980s during the Jerry Faust era. Yet another episode if you're interested in checking that one out. But it was era, of course. But don't sleep on his first starting quarterback, John Hewitt. For the season, John completed 114 of his 205 passing attempts for an eye-popping 2,062 yards. He had a 55.3% completion rate, which was a fantastic mark. He had 16 passing touchdowns. This was, of course, all in 10 games, where passing wasn't nearly as prolific as it is now. Hewitt, again, instilled by the confidence in his first-year head coach, Eric Parsegian, well, he broke pretty much all of the single-season passing records that were in the record books, and that is that. But when you think about the best quarterback and receiver combos in school history, I mean, I would put Hewitt and Jack Snow up there for among the best. Now, granted, later in that decade, you'd see a pretty good one with Terry Hanratty and Jim Seymour. But in 1964, of Hewitt's 114 completed passes, 60 went to Snow. 60, over half, for nine touchdowns. A dynamic duo indeed. The Football Review didn't mince words either. Quote, without John Hewitt. Notre Dame would not have had a winning season. With him, they almost became national champions, end quote. For the 1964 Heisman Trophy Award, voted on in late November of that year, there are some familiar names. Brian Piccolo of Wake Forest, you probably remember him from Brian's song. He finished 10th. Teammate Jack Snow finished 5th. Infamous linebacker Dick Butkus came in third. But yes, Irish fans, sitting atop the heap was John Hewitt. He became the improbable 
Heisman Trophy winner and the sixth Heisman Trophy winner in Notre Dame football history. Not for nothing, he was also named a first-team All-American. <laughs> Talk about a magical season. His Heisman Trophy biography finishes as such. A second-round draft selection of the New York Jets, Hewitt played with Boston, Philadelphia, Minnesota, Kansas City, and Chicago, as well as the Memphis World Football League. He retired from football in 1975. Once out of football, Hewitt began his own highly successful tile business, Arizona Tile, that specialized in marble and granite countertops and quickly became the largest importer of granite in North America. His collegiate career earned him the selection in 2005 to the National Football Foundation College Football Hall of Fame, end quote. Good on you, John. He still lives out west today. And I'll be right back with a brief show wrap. All right, I hope everybody appreciated that little treatise on Notre Dame's sixth Heisman Trophy winner, John Hewitt. So what was the origin of this episode? I always kind of every once in a while like to share this out. So I have an autograph of each one of Notre Dame's Heisman Trophy winners. And I was kind of looking at them the other day, and I hope by now you can kind of not judge me for this remark, but because I, I do know my Notre Dame stuff. But anyways, I, I'm looking at them all, and... I pick up John Hewitt's, and don't get me wrong, I could tell you that John Hewitt had won the Heisman in 1964. I could tell you that he wore number seven. I could tell you what he looked like. There's, I've, I've stared at the photos of him, but as I was looking you know, at Bertelli, Leon Hart, Lou Jack, Latner, Horning, Tim Brown, well, basically, I guess the other six Heisman Trophy winners, and I picked up the John Hewitt signature. I stared at it for a moment and kind of said to myself, possibly even aloud, who the hell is John Hewitt? And of course, I knew who he was, but not to the keen familiarity that I like to have with all of my Notre Dame subjects. So I'm glad, at least if not anything else, I achieved that. But I was a little bit vindicated when I saw that he got a Heisman Trophy winner before he earned a varsity letter. I mean, that is just, I was awestruck when I read that. And I would actually hazard a guess that the average Notre Dame fan, and even probably those who are bigger than average Notre Dame fans and have a strong sense of the program history are probably in the same boat as I was. Maybe knowing the name John Hewitt, but not knowing a whole lot more about it. So glad to properly place him in the context of Notre Dame history, but also properly contextualize just how important that 1964 turnaround season was with Era in his first season at the helm, but with John Hewitt under center. And like I said, this projects to be the last episode of 2022, and what a year it has been for the show. Thank you all so much, again, for sticking around with Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, as we are inching closer and closer to our fourth anniversary, which is wild, I know, but here we are. And I guarantee you, 2023 will prove to be an even bigger year than 2022, both for the show and, of course, for your Fighting Irish on the Gridiron as well. And finally, whatever it is that you celebrate this holiday season, 
I hope you have an absolute merry one. So I had better sign off. This has been episode number 73 of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.